Okay, hello, uh, I'm Mark Fisher, and um, you can probably tell by my um, text-heavy old-fashioned slides, I'm not based in the design profession, <laughs> um, geography, uh, and I actually take a, a historical, conceptual take on um, urban design green infrastructure. So I have tried to shoot on some immediate relevance in, uh, in the last slide for you guys, but I'm really interested in looking at how material forms shape um, social norms, to use uh, the terminology of Paul Rabinow, the anthropologist of urban design. Uh, how urban design uh, is, is shaping <coughs> our social and political organisation, and more interestingly, how they're co-produced, how politics and design is co-produced. So in our research, I'm looking at waterfront design uh, and environmental planning in Singapore. Uh, and I found myself being drawn further and further into uh, detailed design specs of green infrastructure, looking at mundane design features, uh, such as gabion walls, geotextile lining, uh, and, and naturalised contouring. Uh, and I realised that by looking at these, these give me a different perspective on broad issues such as state power, territorialisation, and uh, economic restructuring. So today, I know we've only got 10 minutes, but I just wanted to give an overview about how I think looking at grid infrastructure has been important in terms of transforming the understanding of three key aspects of urban life. That is space, the state, and the subject, as you might know, the citizen. So, there is a lot of work being done on grid infrastructure at the moment. It seems that in our department, most of the projects coming out are actually on, on green infrastructure. Uh, it was mentioned yesterday in Prime Minister's Question Times. Um, but I think my argument is that it's marginalised political factors. So I've only used the Arabs um, report, Cities Alive, here as an example. But we're on the overview of all the criteria that we should look at when we're looking at green infrastructure, is, um, yeah, there's not much of a head up to the public realm and questions of politics in the state. And clearly, there's only a certain amount of time in the day for people. That's where I come in, I guess, and look at these kind of issues that uh, have been marginalised in kind of mainstream conversations about green infrastructure. So my research is based in Singapore. Uh, it's been a historical study from actually from 1819 to 2014. Um, and I've been interested in looking at how Singapore is very famous for its quick, well, its rapid program of infrastructural development since uh, it became independent in 1965 uh, from the British colonial administration. But what interests me as part of the broader narrative around infrastructural development was how Singapore um, shifted their infrastructural approach to water. From the 1970s, what we see here on the left, these big trapezoidal canals were rolled out throughout the 1970s, all over the territory of Singapore. And all of a sudden, in the 2000s, we started to see these same canals being naturalised. <coughs> and I was really interested in thinking about the drivers and consequences of this infrastructural shift, this infrastructural change. And clearly, there's all the usual suspects associated with green infrastructure. So it was based around ideas around flood control, also around biodiversity, Regeneration, all the usual suspects. But what interested me was that actually the Singapore government were quite forthcoming about this. It allowed them to govern 
more effectively. It allowed them to give them people's, the citizens, the population's relationship with water in a much more subtle way. Allowing for uh, a process of decentralization, political decentralization. So how do they do this? So we face around a, a transformation in our, in our understanding of space, our understanding of urban space. As any designer or architect who have the salt over the 20th century, we're always kind of just trying to upscale their remit to the level of the city, to urban planning. Um, it's been a perennial challenge of urban design, I guess. Back to where Le Corbusier tries to upscale his own um, profession through CIAM to the urban level. This has been ongoing since. But it was only in the 1990s, with this shift to what we've called, what's been called landscape urbanism, and the idea of landscape being a key concept in the management of urban space, that we've seen this remit expand from individual sites to individual buildings. And interestingly, with this concept, it does provide uh, a language to transcend administrative boundaries as well as geographical boundaries through ideas around integration. It's a fuzzy and ambiguous concept, and it's allowing for the linking of different departments uh, at the urban level. So in Singapore, we start to see this in um, 1992, the blue and green plan, which is popped up here. But we start seeing ideas around naturalisation start to occur around this time. Uh, they wanted to increase waterfront space from 140 kil kil kilometres to 300 through this plan. And also, importantly, include landscape architects in the urban design process in a much <coughs> more expanded scale. The second aspect of green infrastructure, I think, is worth keeping in mind, is it's always been connected without ideas around governmental reform. So it's exactly these ideas around landscape principles and ecology that has justified and legitimised this decentralisation of the welfare for the state. Um, look at the work that Jane Jacobs was doing in the 1960s, where it's sometimes actually overlooked, but the key to her arguments was the emerging ecological science, ideas around complexity. Um, and their argument was that we can't have one centralised authority that can uh, necessarily manage the complexity of urban life. This required, and uh, this is language associated with landscape urbanists as well, like Charles Waldheim, a uh, radically uh, decentralised form of urbanism. Self-organisation, these kind of issues. So again, we see in Singapore, with the ABC programme, the ABC programme was a flagship green infrastructure initiative that was um, brought online in 2006, which entailed the naturalisation of uh, the canal system in Singapore on a territorial level. So Singapore is half the size of Greater Manchester, so it does have this kind of ability to make urban interventions on this kind of scale. Um, and it's been happening since 2006, and since then there's been um, it started with 28 projects initially. There's sort of 50 projects now, where we've seen these trapezoidal canals being naturalised. Um, and a key part of that naturalisation process was the involvement of private architects and landscape um, designers in that process, in the planning and the construction of these projects. But also, I think more interesting is um, 
they introduced legislation as part of this shift in 2004 that made water um, no longer the property of the state, so you couldn't um, source water anywhere in Singapore without permission from the, the state authority. Uh, but from now on, you could collect water yourself. Also, reservoir, reservoirs are opened up to public use. So the idea was then to introduce non-governmental organisations into these different projects uh, to manage these sites uh, themselves, basically through civil society. So we start to see the state being reformed as well through these kind of these projects. This is again um, emblematic of the general approach to, to, to green infrastructure. And finally, I guess the thing that interests me the most is how this is also based on the transformed idea of citizen, ideas around citizenship. So the causal link between urban design and emotional manipulation is no secret. It's sort of fairly common now in popular discourse around urban design. So we have Charles Montgomery, who did a really key book brought out in 2014, looking at emotional engineering, um, but also goes back to urban designers such as Kevin Lynch as well. But I guess what interests me is that as we've shifted this idea around landscape, Ideas around landscape from landscape architecture have started to enter the mainstream of urban planning. So landscape architects have always been interested around ideas uh, around the genius of place and cultural management. Landscape is a subjective concept um, at the end of the day. So this has allowed um, these projects to try and yeah, more or less program urban space on a scale that I've not seen before. And this is why Charles Wildham again is talking about the landscape architect being the earliest of our age. And so in this project, uh, in Singapore, we start to see, um, yeah, social learning programs being instituted through these projects themselves as well. So um, citizens have been included in the actual design process themselves, and um, landscape architects have been asked to try and inculcate ideas of responsibility and respect around water through bringing citizens into interaction with the physical water itself. So basically water's been used as a technology of government. So why is this important? I guess um, the three key reasons. First, first of all, when we're looking at green infrastructure, we should really pay attention to the critical drivers that are involved here. This isn't implicit, this is explicitly um, outlined in Singapore at least. It should also encourage reflection on uh, roles as landscape architects, designers, designers and planners and different and ways that these professions allow for different ways that government can be enacted. The third of all is the public realm is a design problem. It's a problem of design. Uh, and this also has implicit issues in terms of the role of the state as well. So these are sort of key issues that I think we should keep uh, the front of attention when we look at the green infrastructure. Thank you.